Well, good evening, everyone. This is Laura Coates Live, and it has now been 24 hours since that stark warning from Israel's military. The warning from more than a million people living in northern Gaza to leave their homes. Essentially, get out or else. Well, we don't actually know how the people can really get out. And we don't actually exactly know what the what else or or else will really mean. But that means 24 hours now of desperation, of terror, of fear. People who are caught in the middle with nowhere else to go. And then to complicate and confuse this even further, Hamas is telling the people to stay where they are. So how do the people in the region even know who to listen to? Well, here's what we do know right now. Gaza is bracing for a potential large-scale ground operation against Hamas in the wake of the deadly terror attacks in Israel just last week. Now, it's not clear, sitting here today, how many hostages may be held captive in Gaza. President Joe Biden said this about the missing American hostages. We're going to do everything in our power to find them. I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but there's, uh, we're working like hell on it. Now, if you're concerned about what all of this means for the people in Gaza and the people in Israel, well, so are we. If you're concerned about the emotions that are running very high here at home, so are we. And if you're concerned about what all of this means for the region and what this means for the world, so are we. And that's why we're here to bring you the facts, to give you the information and to put the big questions about all of this to the smart people who know the region and can help us try to untangle the military, the diplomatic, the humanitarian issues. They're here tonight. And here with me is James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, who can tell us what's likely happening behind the scenes and what could happen next. Also, CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen, who has been writing about and reporting from the region for literally decades. And Dr. Guy Ziv, who is from American University School of International Service, who worked at the State Department and on Capitol Hill and brings his expertise as well. I want to start, though, with CNN's Nada Brashear, who has been digging very deeply into what is happening in Gaza. Nada, I mean... This time yesterday, we were reporting that the U.N. was told they had 24 hours to evacuate northern Gaza. So what do we know about where the evacuations stand now? Well, look, Laura, so far it is understood that tens of thousands of people inside Gaza, in that northern region of Gaza, have so far evacuated. That's according to the UN's Humanitarian Affairs Office. But that's in addition to the already more than 400,000 people inside Gaza who have been displaced by Israel's airstrikes over the last week. Now, as you mentioned there, we saw that warning uh, yesterday, that dramatic footage of pamphlets falling from the sky in northern Gaza, a warning from the Israel Defense Forces telling civilians there to evacuate southwards for their protection and for their safety. And as you mentioned there, there was also that counter-warning from Hamas uh, telling people to remain steadfast, to stay put, accusing Israel of engaging in psychological warfare. But as you can imagine, this is a hugely difficult, terrifying time for civilians in Gaza. We're talking about some 1.1 million people in that northern region alone now told that they have to evacuate to quickly gather their things and move southwards in, for, in search of safety. And you can imagine how difficult this is uh, under the current circumstances with airstrikes continuously 
raining down. Now, this is a move that has been condemned by rights groups. We heard yesterday from the UN's humanitarian relief coordinator saying that the noose around the neck of Gaza's civilian population is tightening. The Norwegian Refugee Council has characterized this as an act of enforced uh, removal. They have said that there is no guarantee of safe return. They are accusing uh, Israel of engaging in what they've described as a war crime here. And we've also heard uh, from Palestinian Americans who've received emails now uh, instructing them from the U.S. State Department's Consular Affairs uh, Crisis Management Service indicating that their loved ones may be able to evacuate via Egypt. However, at this stage, State Department officials say that they are still engaging in discussions around this uh, with their partners in both Israel and Egypt. Nana Bashir, so important to hear this tonight. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Major General Spider, uh, James Spider Marks. He's at the magic wall for us right now. And I, I'm going to rely on him to really show us what could happen next in Gaza. As, as we just described, there are desperate people who are trying to flee a potential ground invasion. Let me ask you this, Major General. I mean, we already heard more than a million people are told to evacuate, are told to leave. No clear direction of where they will go, where they might be welcomed, or where they could stay if they could even return. So is it even possible to have this evacuation occur in time, let alone at all? Well, we certainly don't know, Laura, when the, when the ground assault is going to begin. If it were to begin in the next couple of hours and it's daylight now in Israel, I think the short answer would be no. There'd be movement of humanity from the northern part let me move to the map right here, the northern part of Gaza, and there would be along these two major avenues, steady stream of humanity trying to get out of harm's way. So can they do it? Not really sure, but what the Israelis did do is they said, look, we're about to begin a ground assault. We want you to get out of harm's way because we are going to do as best as we can, this is Israelis, to precisely target command and control facilities that belong to and supporting facilities that belong to Hamas. There is no fight against the Palestinian civilians. It's against Hamas. But what Hamas has done is they've violated the international humanitarian law, which prohibits the use of civilians as human shields. And that's exactly what they are demanding. Hamas has said, don't move. We want you to stay in place, which complicates the issue for Israel and certainly puts civilians at risk. You know, that's a very interesting point, the idea of why Hamas, the intention for telling people to stay in the area. Is it, as you describe, for a human shield? Is it for other reasons? We are still learning all this, but we also are seeing, and, and I, I want you to help, help me explain or help explain to the public, really, about the process of these raids. There have been raids into Gaza by the IDF after days of bombardment. There appears to be a chronology that's important here and a choreography that might lead to a military advantage. So. Walk me through these raids. What would be the, the purpose, um, the strategy behind them? What are they looking for? What's all this mean? Yeah, I think what the purpose of the raids were, they came very, very quickly, right? And I think what that means is the IDF probably had high level of confidence on some intelligence of where some hostages might be located. And so they probably took some very limited assaults into the area going after targets that they felt were going to be locations where they could strike and potentially get some hostages out. It was not intended 
exclusively to be an intelligence preparation task. But what happens when you conduct operations like that is you always expand the amount of intelligence that you have. So they clarified a number of things about the area that they went into. But this was not the beginning. This was not the harbinger. This was not necessarily the first step of a ground assault. This was an opportunity to go after hostages and potentially to go after some known targets. But these were limited strikes, limited in scope, limited in distance, and then probably they returned into Israel. Now they're in a, they've improved their intelligence, hopefully. Maybe they've retrieved some hostages. We don't know that yet. Mm. But now the IDF is in a position to begin this assault. General Marks, please stick around. We really want to rely and lean into this even more. Here with me now, as well as Director James Clapper, Peter Bergen, and also Dr. Guy Ziv is here as well. This is incredibly difficult to wrap one's mind around, even with a, a powerful military, a well-regarded military, as the Israeli um, defense system is, You've got hostages on the ground, we believe. You've got a civilian population, Director Clapper, who is trying to get out. How on earth are you able to think about how you could move militarily? It beats me. I, I don't see how this works, frankly. Uh, what you're doing is, is or the expectation, I guess, is to cram uh, people that are already in the most densely, one of the most densely populated areas in the whole world into an even smaller area with no organization on the, on the part of the government. Uh, even if they were disposed to, I don't think they have a capability to organize any, any sort of evacuation. I, uh, I, I hope, I would like to presume that the Israelis have some information that leads them to uh, a terrorist uh, location or, or hostages. Uh, if they do, that's amazing at yeah. this point to know uh, where the hostages are. So I, I have trouble getting my head around what, what's, what, the, what the logic is here other than uh, we've sort of checked the block by warning the population that we're coming and then uh, after that, it, it appears to me that uh, pretty much Katie barred the door. It strikes me what you are talking about substantively, and, and um, gentlemen, feel free to, to join in. The intelligence will be so important here. The intelligence of where hostages might be, why this might be strategically advantageous. The intelligence needs to be top of mind. But we're also learning from sources who have been telling CNN that for days before the attack, there was some UL, U.S. intel that was circulating about reports of possible violence from Hamas. Um, we don't know if this was shared with Israel. We don't know what the information actually was, was. But what do you make of that intel picture? Well, first of all, in the absence of knowing uh, inter-Israeli uh, government communications, it's really hard for us to know, based on this kind of sparse reporting, what all this means. Um, you seem doubtful. That I'm sorry? You, you seem a little bit skeptical. Well, I'm, I'm skeptical of, the, of characterizing this as warning. Mm. Uh, there might be rocket attacks from, from Gaza. Well, what's new? Uh, the problem, as I've indicated the last time we were together, was uh, is the intelligence information that is presented sufficiently compelling to get somebody to do something about it? And that's always the problem you have, having spent decades trying to warn people of things. That's always the issue is mm. not that the, you don't have intelligence, but is it sufficiently compelling to, to get a, 
a president, a prime minister, a commander, anybody to do something. What do you make of that? Um, you know, often uh, after a big event, whether it's 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, or people talk about an intelligence failure. And you know, intelligence, maker, uh, intelligence failures really are often policy failures because we're going to find out, we're already finding out the Egyptians apparently gave them a heads up. There's this other information. And there's really just an assumption about Hamas for, by policymakers in Israel, which turned out to be totally erroneous. The assumption was you know, they're getting jobs, they're getting aid from Egypt and Qatar and certain amount of you know, kind of dealings with the Israeli government, and that somehow they'd forgotten that they, their main goal was the eradication of the state of Israel. And so if you go in with that assumption, you're not going to interpret intelligence that might be useful because you're just going to discount it. By the way, the Israelis did this during, during the Yom Kippur War uh, 50 years ago, which is the Egyptian army and the Syrian army were moving and they were inter interpreted as uh, troop movements that just were regular troop movements rather than a preparation for an invasion. So, you know, we've seen this story before. More will come out. Well, Guy, you know, we are learning about the intelligence, as we're all talking about today, but there's also... I mean, a 24-hour warning was issued 24 hours ago. There is a sense of dread and doom and despair about what might happen in Gaza. We don't have the specifics, but there is certainly dread. This is playing out with the world watching. And how is this playing on the international stage, even among Israel's allies, that uncertainty of what could happen there next? Well, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is uh, very real and it's very tragic. Uh, but Laura, I want to I be clear here. I think it's Hamas that represents the single greatest obstacle to uh, addressing this humanitarian crisis. Hamas knew exactly what it was doing when it attacked uh, Israel uh, in the most brutal terrorist attack in the country's history. They put their own people in grave danger. Uh, we, uh, we've learned that uh, since the evacuation order, the Hamas instructed their people to ignore that evacuation order, which could clearly save lives. Moreover, uh, today we learned that uh, Hamas actually placed roadblocks uh, to prevent uh, innocent civilians from fleeing to the south. So uh, I think we need to focus on uh, the real obstacle here, the real adversary here uh, that has uh, prevented their own people from thriving, from uh, living better lives. And I'm hopeful that some sort of humanitarian corridor will be created through the Rafah uh, border mm -hmm. that would enable uh, food and medicine, other supplies and aid workers yeah. uh, to come in uh, through Egypt and uh, assist uh, ordinary uh, Gazan civilians. I'm so glad you mentioned the, the bordering countries and, of course, what all this means, because this is confined for now in Gaza and Israel, but this is going to have a ripple effect on other nations, a ripple effect on how the policy positions are. Is there a concern about how this would not, or that it could expand into a, a broader regional war and conflict? Well, certainly. Um, the immediate concern is what's going on in the north, and you know what's the threshold that's going to uh, cause the Iranians to direct Hezbollah to, to uh, engage in a more all-out uh, attack. Uh, so that's uh, these. You know what my concern is that mm -hmm. this broadened very quickly, particularly given the plight of uh, Palestinians in Gaza with this evacuation, uh, which to me just you know just makes it worse for them, where it makes the conditions worse. And I certainly agree. It'd be wonderful if Egypt would agree to open a, a border, so you got to a place they could go. Right. Because if they go south, 
at this point, as I understand, the Egyptians are not allowing them in into Egypt. They can't walk across the water. So, so where you're just compressing that, those, all those people into a sm ever smaller area. You know, and remember, this was some of the warning was leaflets from the sky. I mean, just imagine the context here and what this must be like. In addition to all we've learned over the past almost a week now. Stand by everyone, you're gonna come back, of course, and I'll lean on your expertise even more. But my next guest is desperately hoping that his cousin, who is being held hostage in Gaza, will be rescued. And he says negotiation, not violence, is the only way to bring the hostages home safely. I'm gonna to talk to him about that next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, Israeli soldiers are searching for people who were taken hostage by Hamas. The Israel Defense Forces said that it has notified the families of 120 hostages taken captive during the attack. My next guest is one of those family members who is desperately holding out hope that the hostages will be found safely. Udi Gorin, is the, his cousin, remains missing after an attack on his family's kibbutz near the Gaza Strip. Udi, his wife and young daughter were able to escape Israel on Sunday and are now in Cyprus. Udi, I am so sorry to be talking to you under these circumstances. Are you hearing anything at all about what happened to your cousin Tal? No, so far we haven't heard anything. And are you feeling, I mean, when you have the Israeli reservists who are mobilizing, they are likely mobilizing, obviously, for an incursion and what could be happening in Gaza, it could be imminent. Without hearing any information about Tal or any of the others, are you worried about what this means for your cousin's safety? Of course I am. I'm, I'm not worried. I'm terrified. Because, the, for example, Tal, the last time his phone was located, was in southern Gaza. So maybe he was moved to the north and then they're going to find him. Maybe he's going to be the first guy to be found in the first house they go into. But maybe, as his, uh, as his uh, captives see the army is coming, they're going to execute him and run away. That's also very plausible. 
this must be just the thought of that and having to think about those possibilities. It's unimaginable to so many people to think that that has to be anticipated. There must have been such an emotional evolution and toll this is taking on you and your family. What has this been like? I, I can only describe it as sitting on the edge of an abyss full of sorrow and grief. That's really what it feels like for most of the time. Your mother's whole family, I understand, was living in the kibbutz and, and you were texting with them as, as the attack unfolded. Can you describe what that moment was like? You know, the, these people have been living there their entire lives. They've been through all the assaults from Gaza, all the incursions, everything. They are very tough people. And, and you know, as we were texting with them, you couldn't tell what they were going through at those very moments. Only later did we found, find out that my mom's cousins, people in their 60s, were locked in their bomb shelters fighting with terrorists on the outside, inside their homes, fighting with terrorists to hold the door locked, literally holding the door locked for their lives. Because had people gone in, well, we, we know how that ended for other people. We're hearing all these reports, Udi, about a potential response on the ground in Gaza, um, the imminence likely of violence, there are conversations about civilian casualties. You believe that perhaps the violence we're seeing, though, from Israel in Gaza will backfire on the Israelis. Why do you think that? I don't believe it. I know so for a fact. You know how I know it? Because ever since the disengagement from Gaza in 2007, we have seen rounds of violence every two years at first, then every every year, and then every five to seven years, something major. And every time it gets worse. So, you know, history doesn't tell us it's gonna repeat itself for sure, but we can assume that it's just gonna be the same. I mean, what's gonna change? What's, what is going to change after this? So, I mean, you, you have very intelligent people in the studio right now. And I, uh, I want to thank Mr. Clapper for his very poignant points about putting things to, um, you know, really kind of describing what it is on the ground. What does it mean when they say, you know, 1.1 million people need to evacuate? Just imagine telling 80% of the residents of the Bronx you need to leave in 24 hours. Even the U.S. can't do it. And what? And again, and, and, and you know, all of this. I'm making a point because I I'm, I want to refer to Mr. Blinken, and I don't think there's an Israeli right now that doesn't appreciate him being in Israel and standing by our side. You know, not hesitating for a second to say that the U.S. is backing us up. 
we are very, very appreciative. But I want to quote what he says, that the value that we place on human life and human dignity, that's what makes us who we are. And I think he is 100% right. It's the life of everyone, not just my cousin. It's the life of Gazans, of Gazan civilians who have done nothing wrong. And it's the life of the other 150 hostages who are being held there. You know, as a Jew, our Bible says that whoever saves a life, it's as though he had saved the lives of all men. So is Israel willing to give up some of the lives of the hostages? Is my cousin less important than anyone else? And what about the soldiers that are going to go on the ground? I, I, I would please offer you to ask the experts what happened in the last incursions when Israel went into the Palestinian cities, when entire buildings were rigged, when dozens of soldiers were killed, when people, even if, even if they didn't lose their lives, they stayed there for the rest of their lives because of PTSD. The, the meaning of saying Israel is going into Gaza mm -hmm. is, I wouldn't say it's a suicide mission, but it's not far from there. My other cousin, I mean, I have more family. My other cousin's son is in the army. He might be the one going into Gaza. His life is no less important than my other cousin who is now being held hostage. I don't want to risk one life for another. Yeah. Udi, I, your, your words are so poignant. And you know what I'd like to do, Udi Goran, and thank you for being here. I want to turn those questions that you have that are so important to the experts here in this studio as well, because we are thinking of what you are saying and we're taking it very seriously. Let's just open it up right now, gentlemen, because you heard what Udi is speaking about. And of course, this conundrum, for lack of a better word, of what you do, the value of the cost-benefit analysis of war and the strategies of what comes next, um, there are hostages on the ground. There is an incursion or invasion that may be imminent. What goes through the strategist's mind? The strategist has already established what he or she wants to achieve. And I think it's a far-reaching goal, which is the elimination of Hamas. Um, as you look at what is going to occur on the ground, you can speculate. I think Hamas will be bloodied. We've discussed what the civilian casualties will look like. This will be brutal. Um, but I think that Hamas, in some form, will probably survive. You know, I mean, on the hostage rescue issue, even SEAL Team 6 can kill inadvertently hostages when they go in. Um, and, all, and obviously, the hostage takers themselves can kill the hostages. And actually, I looked at a a data set of about 42 cases that where Westerners were taken by terrorist groups. In 20% of the cases, the hostages were killed. So this is a very dangerous moment when you, and you obviously only mount that operation if you think the hostage is potentially, that, that life is in danger. Uh, so anyway, it's very, very tricky. And I understand that, you know, Tony Blinken's visiting the Qataris. The Qataris do have some leverage with Hamas. They do have a record of getting American hostages out. They were instrumental in getting the five Americans out of Iran uh, last month. Uh, so that is a vector where there could be a peaceful uh, resolution for some of the Americans and also other Westerners have been held uh, by Hamas or other terrorist groups. 
And I'll just add that Israel has had a, uh, a history of uh, taking great risks to rescue its uh, hostages and um, including uh, paying a big price for prisoner exchanges. In 2011, it was actually Prime Minister Netanyahu who negotiated through intermediaries with Hamas to release one Israeli uh, captive soldier, Gilad Shalit, in exchange for over a thousand Palestinian prisoners, including many with blood on their hands. This situation seems different. We're talking about about 150 hostages. Uh, they are clearly not in one location. Uh, Islamic Jihad, for example, claims to hold about 30 of them. And uh, the, the priority here seems to be a military victory, which uh, supersedes uh, every other consideration. And um, I'm hoping that they'll be able to rescue um, some, if not all, the hostages. But it seems to be a very tall order. I mean, this I paints a very Mr. bleak Gordon picture. More, I think he asked the key question, what's going to change? Yeah. So by this strategy, whatever it is, are we simply going to, even if we kill every last Hamas terrorist there, are we now going to spawn even more because of the treatment that these Palestinians already, which has been terrible, as a result of this operation, are you going to spawn more terrorists? So I think the question is, what's going to change is, is, is key. I mean, the policy implications and all you describe, it's terrifying, frankly, to think about. And sadly, the reality of war. But in the immediacy of whatever operation has to occur to achieve that directive, we've been seeing the sea, right? We've been talking about what's going on in land and the air. But we also know there are aircraft carriers there is the sea that borders. Tell me about what you think a military operation is going to be looking like to accomplish the directive in light of what we've discussed. Well, what the United States has done is that they've already moved uh, the forward carrier battle group into the Eastern Med. Um, that's primarily to send a signal to Iran. But the tactical and operational requirements that we're looking at will be I think, as a planner, I would think that there would be Israeli Navy patrol boats of some sort on the coast of Gaza, uh, blockading. They have gunfire capabilities. They've got the ability to go after very specific targets. Um, I do think that once a uh, ground assault occurs, I think it will come not only from the north of Gaza, from Israel directly down, and there also, I think, would be an assault from the Wadi Gaza from the kind of the west to the east to the sea. So you have Israeli forces coming across in that direction toward the sea. You would have Israeli forces coming down from the north. They link up, and then the Israelis would begin the assault on targets that they know where they can go after the command and control facilities for Hamas and begin simultaneously begin the hopefully the rescue operations of the hostages. But I think what we're seeing right now um, unless this assault takes place today, I mean, it certainly could take place at any time, but I, I'm sanguine that maybe what we've been discussing is what's taking place right now, which is the anticipation. Is there a scintilla of hope that there might be some type of a negotiation? Are we at the point where the Qataris and the Israelis and Hamas might be able to have a discussion about release and a trade-off? Possible. I mean, the idea of diplomacy, is that possible still? 
I um, asked the question not rhetorically, but that, yeah, the, but, but the, moment, the, the, the pregnant pauses yeah. speak volumes, frankly, given the, all that we've seen, I guess. I mean, that's why Tony Blinken is going on the most, you know, the, the largest Middle East tour he's ever embarked on, right? I mean, yeah. clearly there is an effort. And he speaks for President Biden. Everybody knows that. General Marks, Director James Clapper, Peter Bergen, Guy Zeev, thank you all so much. Your expertise really has been invaluable and will continue. Up next, the race for the speakership on Capitol Hill taking another dramatic turn. And Congressman Jim Jordan seems to be following the mantra of, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Will he be able to lock up enough votes to secure that gavel? The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, House Republicans nominating Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, to be their new speaker. But more than 50 Republicans voted against supporting him on the House floor, which means the House is still in disarray. Joining me now to talk about all of this is master communication strategist Mark McKinnon. He's also the executive producer of Showtime's The Circus. So, I mean, Mark, we've gone now 10 days without a House speaker. Why can't a group of adults elected officials come together to figure out how to have a path forward when, of course, I mean, the stakes are so high. Well, I mean, first of all, you got to look at uh, Kevin McCarthy sold his soul in order to get the speakership in this and trade off this motion to vacate, which is, you know, it's Chekhov's gun. When you introduce a gun in the first act, you know that somebody's going to use it before the play's over. And they did. <laughs> they took him out. So they've got this, uh, you know, crazy set of rules now. And I'm not good at math, but but 55 votes is way, way short of what uh, uh, what Jim Jordan will ever need. So uh, Jim Jordan ain't going to fly. And that's, you know, that's what we heard from Ken Buck on our show last Sunday. He said Buck's not going to fly. He said Scalise isn't going to fly. And if Kevin McCarthy won't fly, you know, those guys won't fly. So it's it's a really it's it's unfortunate, sad, particularly at a time of crisis right now. when We need leadership so badly. I want to play that because you actually spoke with Congressman Ken Buck on the circus just last week about this whole, I mean, let's call it a debacle. Listen. Obvious candidates are Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan. Jordan's a Freedom Caucus guy, so would, in your opinion, it'd be good to have a Freedom Caucus guy? I, I think that uh, Jim would, would have a very steep uh, hill to climb to, to get this uh, job. I mean... Steep Hill, I think, might be a bit of an understatement with 55 votes. They're saying they're not going to do so. So why do you think it's such a steep hill for him? What specifically is it about Jim Jordan? Is it the politics? Is the alignment with Trump? Is it his tactics prior to elevating in the way yeah. he has? History is his tactics. You know, you need a consensus builder. And Ken Buck, who likes him, who is also a Freedom Caucus member, says he's a, he's a bomb thrower. And you can't have a bomb thrower as the speaker. You know, uh, Kevin McCarthy was far from a bomb thrower and they dumped him so that, you know, the answer is not going to be Jim Jordan. And particularly from all those, you know, there's 18 Republicans who were elected in, in Biden districts, districts where Biden won the presidency and they won as Republicans. They're never going to vote for Jim Jordan. 
So listen, I think it's going to take a lot more happening. And I think ultimately it may fall to somebody like Patrick McHenry or somebody that's just, you know, he's just not controversial. He's just a nice guy. Everybody likes him and he can just preside. You know, this really is uncharted territory. You're talking about the person who's a temporary speaker right now. Um, there are three other branches, or two other branches of government, excuse me, speaking of not doing math well tonight, there are two other branches of government, but without a House speaker, Congress is really paralyzed. They can't pass legislation. They can't provide aid domestically or abroad. And the deadline is now in the middle of November. This, uh, taking a step back, says a lot about our democracy and maybe is answering that old question of a republic if you can keep it, question mark. Yeah, it really does. We've clawed our way to the bottom. And listen, we, you know, we covered Matt Gates a lot earlier on. And, and it was really clear when we talked to him in earlier iterations of Matt Gates at, at, at the gates of hell. He basically said, listen, I'm not interested in governing. I'm going to be on TV. I don't need to even, you know, I don't, you know, have to, I don't even need to vote. I'm just going to be a social media presence and I don't give a damn. And if we, you know, my my his goal was just to to really just throw, uh, you know, to, to stop the engine of government from running. And he's been successful. And now we're seeing the consequences. You know, I think, you know, the the those people on the fringe right and the mag of saying, you know, we don't really need government. Well, now we're seeing that we actually do. I'm reminded of a song my kids keep singing by Doja Cat, and she says, I said what I said, I'd rather be famous instead. Apparently that might be the tactic of government these days. Catch more of, the, of Mark this Sunday, everyone, on Showtime with a new episode of The Circus. Mark McKinnon, thank you so much. Take it. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I quote Doja Cat. Well, there are tens of thousands, tens of thousands of Gazans who have fled their homes since Israel's warning to leave, leaflets from the sky. But what's happening to those who are still there? We have a report from CNN's Clarissa Ward next. Parts of Gaza are abandoned tonight as more than a million people desperately try to evacuate their homes amid signs Israel is ramping up a potential military offensive against Hamas. Now, Gaza's humanitarian crisis is deepening. CNN's Clarissa Ward explains the rising fear felt inside of Gaza. They grab whatever they can and set off. Many of them on foot with no set destination. After six straight days of relentless bombardment, Palestinians in northern Gaza woke up to leaflets from Israel's military, ordering them to move to the south of the densely populated enclave. The deadline given to the UN was 24 hours. But there is nowhere for them to go. Efforts to open a humanitarian corridor through Egypt have so far been fruitless, and shelters are completely overwhelmed. The head of the UN's Palestinian Refugee Agency called the order, quote, horrendous, and said the enclave was rapidly becoming a hellhole. The streets of many neighborhoods are already ghost towns, hollowed out by ferocious strikes, those who remain alone with their grief. My sons, my daughters, my neighbors are all gone, resident Abu Hassan says. I only have one message to the Arab and Islamic world. Have mercy on us, for God's sakes, there is nothing left. In several cities across the world today, there were protests in support of Gaza, but the drumbeat of an invasion is growing ever louder here. 
And the price that Gaza's civilians are paying for Hamas's bloody attacks is already so high. At the Shifa hospital yesterday, some of the youngest victims lined the hallways. On a stretcher on the floor of the hospital, a young girl pants with fear. You're a good girl. Praise God, you're here, the man tells her. Don't cry, my dear. Everyone is dead, she says. There's only a few left. In another bed, a young boy lies, heavily wounded, reassuring his father. Don't be scared, don't be scared, Dad, he says. I am fine. But with no promise of safe refuge, fear is the only sane reaction. Clarissa Ward, CNN. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see children suffering. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for telling their story. Ahead, there's much more on the breaking news coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. We'll be right back. We told you at the top of this show about the fear and the concern that is gripping all of us over this war between Israel and Hamas. And even if it may seem like you're powerless to do anything about it, there are actually ways that you can help. For more information about how to support humanitarian efforts in Israel and Gaza, go to CNN.com impact or text relief, relief to 707070 to donate. Thank you all for watching. Our live coverage continues after a short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.